Hey, it's Ruth and Patrick. It's our last show. We've done seven episodes looking at what DC's iconic food says about what it's like to live here. Yeah, thanks so much for spending your time with us. We've already heard from so many of you who are excited about a potential second season. But before we think about more episodes, we want to hear from you about what you liked or didn't like about our first season. And we want to get a better sense of what you want from a show like ours. Did you enjoy our weekly meetups in local bars and restaurants? Would you have preferred a big ticketed show with a program? Stuff like that. If you want to support another season of this show, an easy, free way to do that is to go to the link in the episode description and answer a few questions. It'll only take a few minutes and we will not spam you. And now, on to the show. If all you know about D.C. is from the national news or TV shows, chances are you define power one way. Power is currency in times of crisis. All I have in this situation is influence. Influence in relationships. If you take those things away from me, I am powerless. The Ayatollah is praying. Power is the ability to change the odds in your favor. And get yourself some power. Real power. 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Power. You power is time. Thanks for meeting and with me. And that's What's your pitch, kid? Come on. Time is money. Money is power. Power is pizza. Pizza is knowledge. Let's go. Okay. Power is leverage. Permission. Access. Power is going out to lunch with your coworkers. Is it what? Yeah, power lunching. You know, a business meeting or having some sort of high-powered deal and making it happen over lunch? Obviously, this meal doesn't apply to everyone, and yet, that version of eating out in D.C. has persisted for decades. I mean, there's still people who think the most iconic dish of D.C. is steak. I mean, what did you have for lunch today? Uh, I had a bag of chips that I may have stolen from WAMU's Guns in America team. What did you have? I had leftovers, and it was the third time this week I'd eaten them. This is Dish City. I'm Ruth Tam. And I'm Patrick Ford. What's the deal with DC's power lunch? Who people are spotted with can have actual political significance. And what if you don't have any power? No, I just sort of eat as fast as I can and get back to work. Today, we're talking about how food represents power in Washington. What does your lunch say about your station in DC? The power lunch has been a low-key flex for a really long time, and not just in D.C. In the 1950s, these kinds of meals often took place at traditional steakhouses. They were sometimes called three martini lunches, which gives you an idea of the type of person who could afford them and what their schedule is like and the image of excess it signaled. If you're someone who has power in D.C., a government official, a political consultant, a lobbyist, a lawyer... Doing business over a meal has always been a way to network, strategize, and negotiate deals. And there's one type of restaurant in particular people associate with these meals. Steakhouses will always be popular here. As long as the federal government is here, we're going to have steakhouses. That's Don Rockwell. He's a Washington region native and runs the dining website donrockwell.com. As the nation's capital, D.C. has long attracted people who want to be seen and be influential on a national scale. For years, there's been a demand for restaurants that cater to the needs, budgets, and egos of lawyers, lobbyists, and politicians, not just for their business meals or private dinners, but for special events. You remember the Palm in DuPont Circle? It was a place to see and be seen. No shade to steakhouses, but they seem kind of cliche at this point. There isn't really any buzz about how great steakhouses in D.C. are. And even more importantly, I don't know anyone who has the time to spend hours at lunch. Aren't steaks more of a dinner thing anyway? So we put it to Don. Why are they still so popular in D.C.? For example, our current president, when he goes out, he orders a well-done steak at his steakhouse. 
And it's always been that way for politicians who are from other parts of the country and aren't necessarily adventurous when it comes to, you know, ordering tripe or sweetbreads or uni, for example. They're, you know, they want steak and potatoes. As a Midwesterner, I think people from the middle of the country deserve way more credit than that. But I think Don's making a finer point about the kind of politician that finds their way to D.C. and what food is considered upscale to them. I also think there's this component of what eating a steak means. You're going to this really fancy restaurant to eat a big chunk of meat, and there's this performative nature to it, this really primal thing. And most of the people we imagine in these situations are men. Ordering a steak for lunch says, I am powerful. I am masculine. Drinking three cocktails and downing a steak means I can keep up. Eating a salad in the shark tank that is the power lunch means weakness. And because of who's at the table, everyone's reputation is at stake. Think Don Draper and his colleagues in Mad Men. You ready for another? Or have you topped off your tank? You're leading this dance. Right, what the hell? It's the GOP. They'll never smell it over the stench of Brill Cream. Another round? Wait. You still good with these, or do you prefer your beloved rye? Today, I'm on the Roger Sterling diet. Easy on the vermouth? Another dozen of these? Me as well. Okay, it's clearly a scene, but who really cares about where these power players dine anyway? Because where and what you eat means something, and there are some pretty powerful people in D.C. who think that way too. So, I subscribe to this newsletter called The Politico Playbook. Hi, my name's Anna Palmer. I'm senior Washington correspondent at Politico and co-writer of The Politico Playbook. And I'm Jake Sherman. I am also a senior writer with Politico and also the co-author of The Playbook. The playbook is full of political news, but there's also a section called Spotted that's filled with sightings of politicians seen schmoozing. Reading that part feels like you're watching an episode of Gossip Girl, but like Washington edition. Spotted, Ivanka Trump at Cafe Milano. Spotted, Ben Bernanke at Old Ebbett Grill. Spotted, Corey Lewandowski in the back room of Ocean Prime after his Senate Judiciary testimony. You know you love me. XOXO. Gossip Girl. Yeah, it definitely sometimes feels like Gossip Girl here. Politics are like a spectator sport in D.C. In this town, bars host viewing parties for things like the presidential debates and Senate committee hearings. And it's one thing for political journalists to follow these kinds of events, but unless news is actually made, why do we read about politicians every move like it's on the back page of People magazine? Who people are spotted with can have actual political significance. We grabbed lunch with Anna and Jake at Centralina. It's this trendy Italian spot in city center that they say is a place to be seen. And you have, you know, political odd bedfellows, Republicans and Democrats meeting and over a meal might try to come together on a deal on on all kinds of different issues. Um, And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's important and we try to, we think it illuminates kind of a larger truth about this town. When we arrived, it hadn't hit peak lunch yet, but the staff was hustling to prepare for the incoming lunch rush. We both ordered the Bronzino, even though that kind of violates our usual code of trying as many different items on the menu as possible. Yeah, we're both pretty firm on not ordering the same thing as someone else at the table. But for Anna and Jake, this lunch wasn't really about what we were eating. So much of this town is about information, getting it, obtaining it. I can't tell you the number of people who said, yeah, you know, I got like my last big client because I just, I I wasn't even having lunch, but I saw them at this restaurant and we shook hands and said, oh, I've got this big problem. Can you come talk to me about it? You know, so this is a place where it's all about who you know, what you know, 
and kind of how do can you leverage that? And and over a meal that often is a great place to do it. In order to cover Washington, you have to go where the politicos go. They have their eyes peeled. Even as we talked over our lunches and our corner table, Jake was scanning the room on the lookout for any arriving power players. This is a city, I think, I know, based on just reporting and experience, where if you want privacy, you could have it. So if you're eating with somebody on an outside patio, um, or you're somebody eating on an outside patio, even if you're not with somebody significant, then that's a statement, right? I mean... And Anna and Jake aren't the only reporters in Washington who know you can pick up a scoop if you just pay attention to where powerful people eat. Yeah, I'm Ken Vogel. I'm a reporter in the New York Times Washington Bureau. Ken usually reports on the influence of money in politics. And on one particular day in 2017, he got the poweriest of power lunching scoops. Ken was having lunch with a source at a fancy spot a block away from the White House called BLT Steak. It's often the setting for power lunches. And the source, not me, noticed that seated behind us was uh, were two of the lawyers who were tasked with uh, helping Donald Trump through the Mueller investigation, Ty Cobb and John Dowd. He was trying to stay focused. He was there to talk to his source about another story. But... You know, my, uh, I, I found myself sort of noticing that I could hear pretty clearly what these two lawyers were saying. Uh, after the source and I had basically finished up, I told him that I was just going to hang out there. I'd pick up the check, and then I'd just continue to sit there and get refills of my iced tea over and over and over again, really, like, testing the... Uh, uh, the limits of my bladder to uh, be able to look as if I was just nonchalantly hanging out and catching up on emails as I was overhearing this conversation. Ken learned that there was a dispute on President Trump's legal team. His White House lawyers and his personal lawyers, they disagreed on how much to cooperate with special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian election interference. And once Ken overheard this, he reached out to his sources and this tip-off became a 1,700-word story in The New York Times. I think it's just generally like human nature to uh, sort of like, you know, take notice when someone who you in whom you might be interested professionally or personally or whatever is having a conversation around you. Uh, But in D.C. with the concentration of people, lawyers, lobbyists, government officials who do do lunch, uh, you know, in in these, um, you know, in this like five square block radius. Uh, it is like potentially like a useful, a useful like reporting technique. It was the kind of candid moment that said a lot about what was happening in politics at the time. The kind of thing that could only happen in D.C. because Ken Vogel was in the right place at the right time. We wanted to see if this could happen to us. So we went downtown to witness power lunching firsthand. There it is, our destination. I see a bunch of white men in suits. We have arrived. We arrive at the Palm, one of the places most well known for its power lunch scene. The Palm's DC location has been open since 1972. Then U.S. Ambassador to the UN George H.W. Bush was a huge fan of the Palm's original location in Manhattan, and he often complained about the lack of good restaurants in Washington. So enter the Palm. I just want to say it's really funny that this is how one of the most well-known steakhouses got started in D.C. Some transplant, a.k.a. George Herbert Walker Bush, complained there were no good restaurants in D.C. And then he got a steakhouse of all things built here. And it's a New York steakhouse, not even a Texas one. 
looks like you walk in and you feel like, oh, it's a fancy restaurant because there are wine glasses and white tablecloths and men in suits. But then you look at the walls and it's a bunch of like caricatures of the right. famous people that have been here. And it's like, oh, you're walking down the street and you have an artist draw a caricature of you, that kind of caricature. The people whose faces decorate the walls of the palm represent powerful Washingtonians both past and present. Bill and Hillary Clinton, Ronald and Nancy Reagan, there's some Kennedys, CNN correspondent Jake Tapper. The restaurant is a mix of deadly serious steakhouse and quirky family restaurant, but the clientele and the menu are pretty strictly business. A power lunch, a fixed price power lunch. Yeah, you got your super salad course, your main protein, and your dessert. And you got your dessert. I think that's... Oh, the dessert is an additional $3, though. Oh, it's sad. important distinction. It's not included, which... Patrick and I so both sad. ordered the same thing. Again, steaks with Caesar salad. I'm going to do the power lunch special with the Caesar salad and the Chairman's Reserve New York strip. I'm going to have literally the exact same thing. Okay. Like verbatim. <laughs> power lunches and the steakhouses they often happen at feel very traditional, like you're stepping back into some sort of time machine. Mike Malore, the restaurant's general manager, feels the same way. We don't change very much. We don't go with trends. You know, we, we, Makes we, sense. The food at the Palm is tasty, but it's not really the main reason why people go to a place like the Palm. Yeah, it's to be greeted by someone who knows what you do and how important you are. We definitely Google all people all day long. During lunch, we, we'd probably Google a dozen people a day. Did you Google us? Uh, we did. Really? <laughs> it's to be served by someone who knows who your competitors are and how to be discreet about it. To not know who is sitting at one table and not, also not know who's sitting at the other table would be a very haphazard mistake. For the palm to be successful, it needs to keep doing what it's always done. But the power lunch might be outgrowing steakhouses. There's so many more food options than when George H.W. Bush first complained there were no good restaurants in D.C. This town has gone in, in the last 10 to 15 years from a, like you said, traditionally known as a steakhouse town to we've got everything. We have everything under, under the sun. I mean, we've got so much good food and so much diversity in food. The Italian restaurant Centralina, where we went to meet Anna and Jacob Politico, is a really good example of how the power lunch scene is changing. It's bright, trendy, the floor plan is really open, traditional steakhouses on the other hand are dim and dark. So while the actual power lunch restaurant is changing, the very definition of power lunch is changing too, both for who eats it and what they're eating. That's after the break. Hi. I'm Andy McDaniel. I oversee content for WMU. We've reached the end of season one of Dish City. I'm so glad you've enjoyed this delicious new podcast we've made. You can show your support for more great local content like this by becoming a member of WMU today. You can donate at WAMU.org and tell them Dish City sent you. Thanks for your support. Official Washington, politicos, lobbyists, whatever. It may run on steakhouses, but that's not how many of us live and work. If you're working around the clock or are part of the gig economy, what are you eating during the day? In short, what's a power lunch look like if you're not a big, powerful executive or high-profile politician? We walked around Farragut Square to ask some people what they were eating and what they think a power lunch is. Probably like a salad or like a grain bowl or something like that. Power lunch? Something quick. Um, not filling, but that will get you through the day. No, I just sort of eat as fast as I can and get back to work whatever's around. 
Washington has grown, and like a lot of major cities that attract young people for internships or their first jobs, it has a newer, faster take on power lunching. People eat for fuel, not to impress their peers. For younger generations, particularly if you're a bit lower on the food chain, this power lunch is quick, economical, time sensitive. It's a chopped salad that you order on your phone and pick up at a counter minutes later. It's maybe a juice cleanse made with fruit and vegetables that have never known the tyranny of heat. It's a protein bar, whatever fuels you to work around the clock. Sometimes I make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Sometimes I bring leftovers from the night before. Okay. So. Um, yeah, I feel that. I had a bag of stolen chips for lunch. Yeah, who has the time to take two hours for lunch and drink three martinis, not to mention a steak in the middle of the day? I try to, to avoid the power lunch whenever I can because I have to power the rest of the day. So I'm more of a chill lunch kind of guy. To an older generation in D.C., a power lunch means luxury. Leisure. It's flashing a credit card and impressing your guest. If you're thinking, wow, I cannot relate to this, you're not alone. Even when power lunching like this was the norm, it wasn't without controversy. Until the 80s, you could write off 100% of business meals from your taxes. When he was running for president in the 70s, Jimmy Carter made this an issue on the campaign trail. Jet airplanes, first class travel, the $50 martini lunch. The average working person can't... uh, can't take advantage of that. By the way, I put Jimmy Carter's example of a $50 lunch into an internet inflation calculator. That's over $200 today. Yikes. The government was fully subsidizing three martini lunches, but that tax break lost popularity over time, and now that deduction is capped at 50%. These days, even if you're from an older generation, it doesn't always make sense to power lunch the way people used to. For example, there are ethics rules that keep elected officials from using taxpayer dollars to wine and dine. And let's say you do this kind of thing above board. Eating prime rib with a lobbyist may not be the best look for you image-wise. Why do you think people running for office take their picture at Ben's Chili Bowl as opposed to BLT Steak? Being able to choose whether to power lunch the traditional way or not demonstrates power too, the power to control your narrative. So does the traditional power lunch still exist in D.C.? We talked to all these working people in Farragut Square. Not only were they skipping steakhouses, they didn't even view a power lunch as a steakhouse meal at all. They were like, uh, I'm eating leftover lasagna my boyfriend made, or I'm eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I don't know if either of these extremes, steakhouses or leftovers, say I'm powerful or I'm in control, but I admit they do kind of say my work is really important to me. And what are Washingtonians if not workaholics? I might also point out that even when we were power lunching at Centralina, no one ordered a steak because red meat was not really a thing on that menu. We ordered fish. Anna ordered a salad. Who the hell wants to have a big steak at like like, noon, you know? Not me. change their menu to adapt to the new style. A lot more fish is offered, a lot more salads. What do you think my Bronzino said about me? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Maybe you needed a power-up to produce this episode instead of passing out midday for a nap? You know me too well. That's it. That's the end of the first season of Dish City. The show is produced by me, Patrick Fort. And me, Ruth Tam. If you want to talk to us online, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Dish City. And our email is dishcity at wamu.org. 
If you want to talk to us in person, we hang out at local bars and restaurants the Tuesday after each episode drops. This Tuesday, October 29th, we'll be posting up at Hawk and Dove on Capitol Hill. It's your last chance dance to hang out with us, IRL. We'll be there from 6 to 8 p.m. You can find details at dishcity.org slash side dish. Like we said at the beginning of the show, we want your feedback about Dish City. What did you like? What did you hate? We want to know. Click the link in the episode notes. It'll take just a minute of your time and your thoughts will mean so much. Shout out to our team at WAMU and beyond. Our editor is Ponzi Rutch and our associate producer is Julia Karen. Our theme music is by Daniel Peterschmidt and Steve Lack and Ben Privet mixed today's show. WAMU's general manager is JJ Yor and Andy McDaniel oversees all of the content that we make here. Bye. We love you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>